If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I am your host, Brad Burke. I'm here in Chicago. And on the line with me today, my longtime, almost five-year co-host, contributor, whatever you want to call it, Gareth Hughes in our Brooklyn Bureau. Gareth, uh, how's that whole cancer thing going for you, buddy? I'm in I'm in Manhattan today, but not for cancer or anything like that. Okay, so good. I guess I'm in the Manhattan Bureau. Uh, cancer, dude, cancer is a drag. I cannot recommend, would not get. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, that, I mean, I joked early on in this with some people that my, my Yelp review of cancer was like, one half star. You get to catch up with some old friends and get a new perspective on life, but none of the rest of this is worth it. Um, and I stick by that. I, uh, I'm about 10 months in, which, hey, look, a lot of people who get diagnosed with cancer don't get 10 months. Um, but as I look ahead into the future, there's, I, there's cancer as far as my eyes can see, and I don't get a break. And I've been pretty not into that of late. If I can be totally honest about it it's uh but th- that tomorrow is a big i got a big big day of tests and whatnot coming up this week so there's plenty to come i'll that's a tease everybody i'm gonna leave you in suspense <laughs> on how things are going have we talked um, have we talked on the pod since richard deitch did the nice profile of you ahead of the jim kelly teaser that we you did, did not we did not talk so that that was an interesting thing. So that Thanksgiving, so around Thanksgiving, I did the the tease for CBS Sports for our our Thanksgiving game. It was the the Bills and Cowboys, and it was um, it was a piece about Jim Kelly looking back on his life and still being thankful for everything he's gone through. And Richard Deitch, you know, the the part of the behind the scenes story became like guy with cancer doing a piece about Jim Kelly public face of cancer in a lot of ways and so they they interviewed me and we uh, it was published in the athletic and it was awesome it was a the great outpouring from cbs and the entire sports media community and television community and um in that week i had a scan and that week i got like the best news i had gotten and the piece came out well and was really well received and it was just like that was i will tell you brad i'm I'm glad you brought it up like that was the last high point of cancer (laughs) like that week was nothing but good vibes and good news and ever since then it's been a really rocky journey of if this is going well that's going poorly or if that's going poorly this is going well and like we have not had a great there's been a lot of inconsistency in both like the treatment and how my body's responding to it since Thanksgiving. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, it, Cause it was, it's something I've been rec- uh, referencing a lot recently with that, that week. I'm like, what happened since then doc? Like everything was going so well and I was doing good work and scan results were great. And now what are we doing? So- yeah. It- <laughs> Every time we talk, I feel uh, I've kind of felt that that is as it's been like, hey, I'm at 
chemo today and then we'll talk in a couple days and you, and like your high energy and then it's like well i got it, i got this other test result coming back and i i just wonder too is it, have you kind of gotten into this kind of i don't kind of know where i'm going with this but at this point in the process do you feel like you're kind of like lurching from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and are you at that point where it's like hard to see like the horizon as the car is just like perpetually on like the flat surface yes yes it is hard like I said, if I look into the future, there's cancer as far as the eye can see. And I don't know. There's just been such uh, ups and downs and inconsistency and, frankly, how I'm responding to treatment. Um, but that's made it really hard the last few months. I don't mean to get into this in a, a like a, a woe is me kind of way because, like, look, it, it, like this. It just, it sucks, you know, and it's hard and you've got a, there's a sign when you walk into the, I get treated at the Rockefeller outpost of Memorial Sloan Kettering at the corner of 53rd and 3rd. And there's a sign as you walk in and it says something to the effect of like, where the physical meets the mental and spiritual to aid in the fight against cancer. And I think that that's actually very, I look at it every time I walk in. I really like the message of it because I think it's true. I think that it does like, I think being treated for and having cancer does require something out of you mentally and spiritually and emotionally that just kind of being sick doesn't have, you know? And so there is a lot of, um, I don't know, the uncertainty, the, I don't know how to measure a future right now. Um, you know, my wife and I sit and talk about, uh, you know, like tax season's coming up and it's like, have you done this for our retirement fund and things like that? And there's a part of me that feels like, fuck yeah, I'm talking about our retirement fund because I'm going to work for a long time <laughs> and then retire and things like that. And then there's another part of me that I was like, is this the height of arrogance? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, but, you know, I think you have to do those things to keep going. And, um, you know, a friend of the pod, uh, I'll say like Brian Curtis just wrote that exceptional piece in The Ringer about uh, it was an oral history of Stuart Scott and the last few years of his life as he was dealing with cancer. And I, I Brad, I reached out to you and just I, I was really moved by that piece in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. And I thought that his depiction and the depiction of Stuart Scott's battle against cancer was honestly like not just one of the most moving but one of the most triggering i have had since this began like i was really affected by some of the things that i saw that were totally true and uh so i wrote to brian and he wrote back and he talked about that um as as things went on with Stu, like he would talk to people about just i don't want to talk to you about cancer right now like i want to talk about sports or what movie you saw or like I saw a friend this morning and she was just complaining to me that she hurt her foot and she's in a boot. And I was like, and at the end she's like, but look who I'm complaining to. I was like, no, 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 this was so refreshing. I don't <laughs> want to talk about any of my shit and just, I'd rather hear what's going on in your life or your complaints than have to get into mine because yes, they can be endless. Um, but it's fine. Like, and we all have stuff to complain about. That's the other thing. Like people get, they start to treat you with this weird, like, well, I can't complain around you. You have cancer. It's like, well, you can absolutely complain about me around me. Um, right. And sometimes it's very refreshing. So, well, this was a, uh, uh, 
This was a uh, unusually profound start to this this podcast. <laughs> just not sports. Well, I, listen, <laughs> I will say this for you and for the listeners. Like, um, I am incapable of giving simple answers to this. So um, that is my my warning going forward. <laughs> well, so. look. We we decided to get back on the air together here to uh, uh, just to, to kind of kick the tires, talk about things that are distracting us. So we're going to do that after the interview. But right now, we're going to uh, jump to a conversation I got to have with Sports Illustrated reporter Emma Bachelary. All about, and Gareth, appropriate for you to be back. We're talking art today because she is getting into watercolors. And so uh. this was a lot of fun. And it was it was a lot of fun, especially because it's something that she's keeping 100% private. Like, we talk a lot mm-hmm. about, are you going to put these on Instagram? And she's like, nope. <laughs> and we, we get into the joy she feels in just doing it, but not trying to care how good she's getting at it, or is it a side hustle, or is it Instagram Instagrammable? Right now, we're going to go to the interview with Emma, and then Gareth and I will be back to distract you. Before we get into uh, painting... I have to ask you about something that I ran into on your Instagram that is a, a okay. subject near and dear to my heart. The book, The Power Broker, uh, <laughs> years ago. So my, my co-host on the show, my longtime co-host, unfortunately, he's recovering from cancer, uh, but he's been like a, my best friend for my entire life. And years ago, we saw uh, Michael Shore, the creator of Good Place and uh, Parks and Rec, tweet that The Power Broker was the greatest nonfiction book ever. So we read that book together, it like almost broke us because it's like so dense and there's so much information in it. We eventually had Michael on the show because he agreed to come on because his wife had banned him from talking about The Power Broker. He talked about it so much with people. <laughs> I have to know, how far are you in this book? Did you finish it? And and what's the experience been like for you? Because I've been there, my friend, and it is, uh, it's a great book, but it is a, uh, it is a commitment. Yeah, I think that is a great way to describe it. I, <laughs> I have not finished it, even though I've been reading it on and off for about eight months now. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I'm around page 700, which is like barely halfway through. Um, and yeah, it is just a mountain of a book. Super interesting. Completely understand why there's been as much hype around it. It totally deserves all of it from the the point I'm at, at least. Um, but yeah, I think I just kind of psyched myself out on it. Like I really tore through the first, I would say like 300 to 400 pages. I probably yeah. read in about like two weeks. I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. <laughs> You're going to finish it so fast. And then like, I just got overwhelmed. I think by, I mean, part of that was other things, work picked up, life, you know, and the, right. part of it was just the book itself. It's just so big that I started being like psyched out by how physically unwieldy it is and that like oh I'm not going to carry this around with me like I multiple times while reading it in bed would like literally drop it on my face Um, (laughs) and yeah I just would like think about it all the time but not actually read it if that makes sense 
Oh, and, and th- you reach a certain point where it's like, and here's 30 more pages of breakthrough reporting about one local park that had a, a bad reaction. You're like, it's it, it's a jaw-dropping example of thorough journalism. But after a certain point, you go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get it. I get it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, so y- you wanted to talk painting, and I, I believe specifically watercolor painting. And I wanted to get into how this became a thing for you. Did you have a history with art? Did it just, did someone turn you on to this specifically? Or did you just kind of run through a store and, and bump into it? What, what's the origin of this as a, uh, as, a, as a hobby for yourself? It kind of came out of nowhere. Like I, I wasn't a super artistic kid. Like I enjoyed art class, but I, I didn't have my own outside art pursuits. Um, and I certainly hadn't done anything as an adult, but I got to a point last year where I kind of realized, like, I don't have any hobbies that, you know, I, <laughs> I, I read, I work out, I hang out with friends, I enjoy like cooking and baking, but I just felt like I didn't have anything outside of work that was like my thing, if that makes sense. Um, and I realized like in particular, I, I wanted to try to do something that a like kind of had no expectations around it. Um, like not something that I wanted to do because I wanted to be good at it or something that was related to work or writing or sports, like something that kind of existed totally outside that sphere and also outside the sphere of something that could be like tracked or performed. Like I didn't want to do something that I was going to end up posting on Instagram or, you know, logging in a spreadsheet, which I realized, you know, from everything from the books I read, I end up, I keep track of them. Those are in a list. I share those. (laughs) I like even like walking around my Fitbit tracks that. And I look at how many steps I take each day. And when I go on runs, I log that and I have a spreadsheet for that. And I wanted something that was just like totally outside of any of those realms, like something that is just for me that doesn't really mean anything and has like no pressure around it. So I thought some form of art was a good idea for that. So I just kind of went to an art store um, here in Washington, DC where I live and was just like, I'm a total beginner who knows nothing about anything in this store. Um, And I just want to try something fun. And uh, the guy who was there recommended watercolors and I, I picked up a set and I'm Really bad at it, but I really, really love it so far. I'm glad to hear you say that. I know we traded notes in advance talking about there There has been, I, I believe, a bit of a reset on the side hustle that I've seen a lot of trend pieces come out and say, maybe we need to get back to just having hobbies for enjoyment and not convincing ourselves that this is going to be some sort of you know, uh, corner store that we have to open and abandon the rest of our career pursuits or whatever. How much actual enjoyment do you take from this and how much do you relish doing it in a personal pressure-free way as opposed to um something that you are trying to commodify in any any kind of tangible way yeah i mean i think so much of that is the appeal like i I, and i've found appeal in the the act itself um i like it's kind of like a puzzle in some ways in that it's really hard to determine you know just how to mix your paints and just how much color to get and how to make it so that the colors don't bleed. Like I've enjoyed it in both an artistic sense and it kind of that like 
puzzle sense of just the basic technical stuff because it is kind of a pretty unforgiving medium, I think, just in that it's hard to control. But yeah, so much of it is from exactly what you said, just kind of like, I'm doing this just because I want to do it. Like there's nothing outside of it. There's nothing really to come for it. There's no goal here. Like I don't even know how I would really set a goal other than like do it and try to enjoy it, you know? And that's been just really fun. And I guess I didn't realize until I started doing this um, that I didn't have something like that. And it's really made it, like kind of registered with me like it it had been a long time since you did something that just like totally existed for yourself you mentioned mixing the paint um you know figuring out how to um anticipate the bleed on the surface you're using i've interviewed other people about I remember having Rick Tellender on the sports writer and and he had dabbled in painting and i th- I think he had kind of described watercolor as almost being like surrendering to the lack of control you have over the paint um and and allowing it to have a certain measure of um its own mind in terms of what it wants to do so can yeah you, can, I wanted to ask you about your experience with the medium itself because it is it is very I think people look at watercolor and, and they might get the wrong impression that like oh it's like uh you know, it's something that you can jump into. We all remember doing it as a kid or, or in art class or whatever. But to me, I think it's one of the most unpredictable and unwieldy forms of art. And I, I wonder how you have grappled with that as, you, as you've gotten into it. Yeah, it's so hard, <laughs> um, which is cool. Like, it's fun in that, like, from the start, I was just like, oh, wow, like, this sucks. But it's also really interesting because then it becomes a challenge and also, yeah, like I have that base assumption that like, mm, like this isn't going to be great. And let's just see kind of what it ends up looking like. But yeah, I don't know. At first, the first couple times I did it, I like didn't research anything at all um, just to see what it felt like and see how much I could figure out myself. And after I kind of had a loose idea, I started like watching a few YouTube videos and like looking up stuff for beginners. But um. Yeah, it's really hard just because there's a a lot of elements to it. And it's not just like, how are you actually painting? It's okay, like, how wet was your brush? How much water did you mix in the paint? Did you wet the paper before you started? Like, and there's all of that. And then there's the actual act of painting itself. And if any one of those elements is like changed, even the tiniest bit, it can look totally different. And then another big thing is that, you know, to really make it look good, you have to be kind of patient and letting one layer dry before you do the next or before you add another color elsewhere on the paper. And I'm really bad at that. So I've had a lot of cases of just being not patient enough and rushing ahead and then all the colors bleed. Um, And even that has been kind of just like fun and interesting. And it's cool to see how it looks totally different um, every single time, even if you're trying to recreate the same thing. Do you stick with something if it doesn't start the way you want, or are you someone that's like, like I'm, I'm someone who, um, like I have a six year old daughter, so I'll, I'll draw with her, and I'm someone who, if, I, if I don't get that first line on the eye right, I, that paper is crumpled up. <laughs> I'm like rebooting, like control alt delete this one. Like, what's your style in terms of, um, where you go into the painting with your expectation and how long you're willing to sort of hang with it and see where it goes. 
Yeah, that's actually one of the things that's been cool about this, that like before I started this, I would have categorized myself very much like how you just did. Like if it wasn't right with whatever I was doing, it should be like, nope, start over, start fresh. Um, And with this, like I haven't been like that in part because so much of it is just kind of like figuring out the very basics of something that I'm like letting myself just do it and see where it goes. Um, And yeah, part of that is just kind of that like freedom to not care, I guess. Um, And so, yeah, I've sometimes I'll like eventually move on to a new page, like taking what I did on the previous one is like, okay, like you can do this a little better now, but it's been pretty rare for me to just say like, oh no, like this is too screwed up. Like you have to start over. It's more just like, oh, like, okay, finish it, see where it goes. And then if you want to try it again, try it again later. What do you like to paint? I actually have discovered that I, my favorite thing to do recently has just been trying to get like gradients and shades of colors, if that makes sense. Like I still have a little bit of self-consciousness around like actual shapes, even basic ones and definitely not like people or anything, but I've had a lot of fun and found it like really meditative to do kind of like, okay, I'm going to try to do the sky and like starting with like a super light blue down to like a deeper, darker blue or doing the same thing with like a pink or a red, or even I just did one that was like a black for like a night sky and just like trying to get, see how you can work a color to get different shades within the same painting has been really cool and fun. And that's like, if I don't have a lot of time, that's usually what I'll just do is just take a color and see how you can kind of like manipulate it. I guess, how have you progressed as a, as an artist here in terms of honing a style? You mentioned kind of experimenting with certain, you know, subjects or or just the way that, that the paints work. Are you starting to shape together a little bit more of, and I say this with a little bit of a grain of salt, like we've already talked about this being just a, a, a pursuit, not uh, like you're trying to to become the next great American artist, but, but are you starting to develop a confidence or a certain way with the paints that you feel like is, is, is becoming your own? That's a really good question. And I haven't thought about that that much. Um, I think in a sense, I kind of am in that, like I feel a bigger sense of control over it. Like I feel that I can have a better idea of what is this actually going to look like when I sit down and start. Um, But I'm not sure if I actually know enough about even what I want it to be like any of this pursuit, not just any one specific drawing to know if I have a style, if that makes sense. I don't know. It's a lot of fun. And that's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, as of right now, I'm not sure if you could tell one, like between if you had a set of all of the stuff I've done, if you could tell (laughs) that they're all by me, we're just like, "Mm, this is just paint on a page. What is this? (laughs) Um, But yeah, maybe one day. Do you ever paint sports subjects or do you like keeping this compartmentalized from your day job? So I haven't yet, but I actually recently, like just this week, I sat down and was like, oh, you should try a baseball field sometime. Because I feel like that's one that kind of works with a lot of the stuff I have been doing, like the shades of green. Like it's a pretty simple one that I think I could do and not look totally terrible. Um, and also I think specifically with baseball, with which is what I cover most frequently, um, 
I like the challenge of trying to do different ballparks where you have like the same basic shape, but they all have, you know, their own right. little things that make them different. So that's something I'd like to work up to. And I do think I really like the idea of doing a ball field in particular, because like it, it is work, but that's also something I've loved for a long time. So yeah, I think before uh, baseball season starts here for 2020, I'd like to see if I can try a couple of those. Have any of your paintings made your wall yet? They have not, but I actually, I was just thinking about that. Um, my apartment recently flooded a pipe burst in the building and I didn't have that much damage, but enough that I had to take everything down off the walls. And as I'm starting to like hang stuff back up, I was thinking like, hmm, like maybe you should make some space for one of your own. So I, I think I'm close to that if I haven't done it yet. How about, well, first of all, you definitely should do that. The key is going to be where you put it, you know? Are you, are you going to go, like, you know, prominent when you walk in? You want to, like, tucked in tucked in a bathroom or, like, something that someone just kind of runs into, you know, when they visit, yeah. uh, you know, a little bit little more Easter often. Egg. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about, I mean, as someone who covers sports, do you, we've had on a number of athletes who have, who have done art, you know, from, you know, Aaron Maben and Desmond Mason, Breck Shea. How, um... Have you ever run into athletes who are sort of low-key art fans or or those who who dabble in it? Or is this just too much of a kind of behind-the-scenes passion point for you that it hasn't come up yet? Um, It hasn't come up yet, but I am interested because, like you said, I know for quite a few uh, people, it's something that they do. Um, And, yeah, I think I've finally gotten to a point with it where, like, I'm comfortable talking about it enough. Like, it feels like something that I, I do and not just something that, like, I've, you know, dabbled in by myself alone behind closed doors a couple of times um, that I would maybe be interested in bringing it up in a case where that made sense. So, yeah, I've never talked about it with someone, but you're totally right. There are, you know, several that have that um, as something they do on the side. So, yeah, I guess we'll see. Well, you do realize this is a podcast, right? You talk about like not being comfortable yet. Yeah, <laughs> this is the coming out party, I guess. <laughs> this is the dry run, I would say. Yeah. I'm a very low, I'm a very low pressure environment. Um, let me ask you about your approach to social media because I did a little. I mean, that's how I ran into the power broker because I was like, oh, I'll, I want to go check out some of her paintings on Instagram or whatever, and I'm like, this is just not here at all. Yeah, and so. It, even if you're not, um, you know, it sounds like you're not going to be someone who's like every other photo is going to be you holding up another one of your works, but you have, have you been consciously, um, just not even showing anything about, uh, like the interest at all, or you painting or, or just like a, like a selfie while you're doing it that kind of hints at this is a, a passion point for me, or maybe you have, and I just, I just haven't missed it. Yeah, no, you're right. I, I haven't posted about it at all. Like I've talked about it with friends and stuff, but I haven't posted about it. Um, And that actually was kind of a conscious decision that like when I was first starting out, it was just because like, like, I don't, I don't seem very good at this and I don't know if I'm going to become good at this. And so I, you know, didn't necessarily want to like showcase it. Um, And then after a while, after I realized how much I enjoyed it, I really kind of liked that it felt so personal, I guess. Um, and I, I just really liked that it was something that only existed with me and then with, you know, the few friends I had told about it that, you know, I felt like I, I don't post a ton of stuff on social media, but I definitely do post, you know, 
the TV shows I'm watching and the movies I see, the sports I watch, the work I do, the books I read, you know, the, even like the dinners I make. And it was kind of cool that I was just like, I feel like I have so little that I haven't shown like that. Um, And it was, it just felt kind of nice to have something that like totally existed outside of that sphere, which I, you know, I don't think I'm going to keep it that way forever. I'll probably post about it at some point. Um, But yeah, I did like at the very beginning, it was a conscious decision just because it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I want to share. And then I realized kind of how much I liked actually having this as the one thing I didn't share. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone can relate to, we live in an oversharing culture. There are certain things that that said, you as a member of the media and someone who's, you know, on the front end of your career, how much pressure do you feel to put your entire personal self out there as part of your professional brand? And and how many people like you, I mean, is this something that you're conscious enough of that you talk to about with other young media about wh- where are we going to set a line, whether it follows the steps of the, those who came before us or whether it resets things and draws deeper boundaries with your with your audience? Yeah, I think it's it's really tricky. Um, and I, like, I honestly don't really have a great answer for myself of where like a personal brand starts and stops and what parts of me are part of that and what parts of me are separate from that. Um, and I feel decently happy with the balance I have right now, um, which is like feeling free to, you know, talk about the stuff I cover and some stuff in my life with some sense of like voice and personality, I guess, um, on Twitter mostly. And I kind of have Instagram pretty separate from, uh, my like professional brand. And that's more just me as a person. Um, and I I feel comfortable ish with it right now, but it definitely is something that I'm very conscious of that. I know, you know, most of my friends and coworkers in the industry are really conscious of, um, and, yeah, it's just hard to navigate. I think definitely it's true that, uh, you know, people who are in kind of my age cohort and, you know, not that far removed from college who were established on social media as themselves before they went into media because we've been on it since high school. I, I think you see kind of a more fine-tuned awareness, I guess, of that and what it means to have part of your professional brand be your personal brand. But I think yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's hard to navigate. I still don't know exactly where I come down on it. And, you know, the long run, I don't know if that'll evolve the longer I'm working and the longer I'm doing it. But um, it, it it's definitely tricky to figure out, I think. Uh, you mentioned kind of looking at stuff online or like, you know, other people's videos. Who's your Bob Ross? Who's the Bob Ross of watercolor for you in terms of somebody that, or, or an outlet or, or whatnot that is particularly inspiring and, and, and formative for you getting into this space? Yeah, there, this is actually um, a woman I followed on Instagram like years before I thought about doing this for myself. Um, her name is Mary Andrew, um, M-A-R-I Andrew. And she started like a couple years ago, she basically did a project where she kind of like me had never watercolored before. And she did like a different watercolor every single day for a year um, and just posted on, on Instagram. Um, and I loved her stuff. I just thought it was like, it's funny. They're kind of like more like cartoons or like journal entries almost. Um, 
but in watercolors. And I loved that for a long time. And I didn't even realize they were watercolors until I started using watercolor. Um, I think I thought they were just like markers or something. I like I didn't even see it as art really. I just thought it's like this is like a really interesting, funny, talented person I follow on Instagram. Like I didn't think about the medium it was uh put together in. Um, but now that I've been working with it myself, like going back and looking at um her posts and her paintings, and she actually came out with a book, I think, last year, uh, has given me like a whole new appreciation for how she does it. And um, yeah, just like it, oh, she has a really just cool sense of spirit to it. And I love looking at what she's done. Oh, come on. You got to be the next YouTube influencer, right? Like let's fast forward to like 10 <laughs> months from now. And you're just like, you know, you're making like 300,000 bucks a month on uh, ad revenue from your watercolor tutorials. Yeah. Start a Patreon, get a, <laughs> <laughs> everyone to follow. <laughs> well, you give me a lot of time. Let me end with some quick hit kind of art related stuff here. Um, I, I, you know, Mina Kimes says, you know, we, we all know her as the Etch-A-Sketch queen. She posts a lot of watercolors of late on Instagram. What's the odds we can get a group of sports media who, uh, who are painters to put a show on, huh? Like, when, when's that going to happen? You know, that would, I think that sounds great as like an innovation beyond live podcasting, just live painting where everyone's working <laughs> in silence. <laughs> just to get an audience to come watch, see the magic happen. So, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's the next frontier. I'm in. I'm in. How about this? You, you you mentioned covering, you do a lot of work covering baseball. Which baseball player, uh, in your opinion, is most likely to be the real Banksy? Oh, that's a great question. I think I'm going to go with Sean Doolittle. The oh, Washington yeah. Nationals pitcher. Yeah, definitely. Like very socially conscious. I can see like him having the kind of edge behind that work. Um and like the, with the glasses and the beard, I feel like he, like the whole image is kind of there for me. So I'm going to go with that. That's my secret Banksy pick, Sean Doolittle. Yeah, but wouldn't there be more Star Wars Banksies floating around, right? <laughs> That's true. Great point. <laughs> yeah, I guess if we see like a Baby Yoda floating out there, we'll know. <laughs> yeah. We'll know. That, Baby Yoda on like the Wailing Wall. It's like done. Like, uh, yeah, book <laughs> it. How about um, my sister dated an online cartoonist years ago who uh, one year for Christmas did this like kind of clever cartoon for her in a frame. And then for subsequent <laughs> like gift giving things kept giving her drawings what's your take on art as a gift and how would you what how good would a piece need to be for you to like uh make that the one thing you give someone like on a on a special holiday Ooh, that's a good question i i think actually right now i would be comfortable giving one to my boyfriend because he knows how much i like it and how much i work at it i think to give it to someone like to give it to like my grandmother, I think I need a couple another months of work <laughs> to feel like, oh, like this is like good enough that someone would feel comfortable displaying it in their house. That like is just a measure of affection, but as like right. a, a piece of work. Not quite there yet, but I think I'm getting closer. How about uh, one piece of art you've seen in your life that actually moved you? Is there anything that comes to mind in terms of a, a particularly stirring experience? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, This isn't, I don't know if this is like my definitive answer, but one that comes to mind off the top of my head um, is I live in DC where, you know, a lot of great museums through the Smithsonian. And I recently did um, a piece on uh, the National Portrait Gallery because they have like a group of people who are kind of inducted into the portrait gallery every year, who like 
great Americans whose portraits they display. Um, and Marvin Miller, the former oh, yeah. head of the uh, yeah MLB Players Association, was one of the 25 this year, which is like actually a you know a pretty big deal. So I went to report on that. Um, and right outside the hall of the 25 new people, which along with Marvin Miller included like Jeff Bezos and Morgan Freeman, um, Earth, Wind and Fire, like really this crazy cross section of, you know, like big names from the 20th century. Um, there is this painting of a marine biologist um, that was just so striking that it made me like just like catch my breath and stop and stare at it, um, where it was the woman, I forget her name right now, but this marine biologist who was just surrounded by all of this ocean wildlife. Um, and the colors around it, it was all like shades of blue and green. And the, I mean, I guess ocean wildlife, which I don't know much about, but, you know, so much of it is like small stuff and it was all just floating. Um, and it was the first time in a long time that I'd kind of just stopped and been like, wow, like the amount of craftsmanship, I guess, like something like that takes and the way that the color is used was so striking that it was just such a good reminder of like, like this is incredible stuff. Like in the number of ways that you can use that to kind of reflect something about a person and their work, um, which I guess is what like an institution like the National Portrait Gallery is all about. It's like, it's just so phenomenal. And it's so cool that this is not only here at all, that someone has produced this work and that it's here in this like free public institution that is open to everyone. Um, and it was just like a really cool moment and a really cool painting. Um, so yeah, if anyone is in DC and has a chance to go to the National Portrait Gallery, the enormous blue and green painting of the woman surrounded by fish <laughs> and shrimp and krill, I really recommend. That's awesome. And look, you, I, I, I gotta let you go. You give me so much time, but I, I really appreciate it. I think this is great. And I, I, I really do admire what we talked about in terms of getting back to people um, doing things for enjoyment's sake and not for um, public display, bragging rights, and or pressure. So I just wish you nothing but the best. And um, I, I don't know how this comes across, but I hope maybe not to see your work soon. <laughs> that makes Thank sense. you. Yeah, that's exactly what I want. Thank you. <laughs> And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things. And then we, the fans, tell them, stop being interesting. Get back to watching game film. And so on this show, in a segment coined by Gareth Hughes, who is, is joining us for it today, on this show we tell you what's been distracting us to celebrate locker room distractions. Gareth, the floor is yours, my friend. Well, I saw this tweeted out from the Just Not Sports account this morning. And Oh, I know where you're going with this. I might have said recently that Cheer on Netflix was the best show. I, I would say documentary show I have watched in years. And I did not know that Just Not Sports was also watching this show. And so I would say that, yes, Cheer is, has been my distraction for the last week and a half. It made me sad, Gareth, because and this is going to sound like the the pinnacle of of hubris as we kind of discuss off the top, but in a way less noble way. I legitimately watched it and was like, Gareth and I should have made something like this, but like for band 
you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah, or yeah. theater club. Cause now get ready for all of the wave of these, but it was, yes, yes. it was really well done. I mean, I think it's drawing some, I guess people inside the media might kind of eye roll and be like, well, it's last chance you, but for another sport, but yeah. And it works. And well, it, what, what, all these things, like somebody invented the follow doc model at HBO. They called it 24 seven years ago or whatever. And that, it's just been, you can do it for everything. You can do it for singing and for artists and uh, like pop artists. And you're like, it just, the follow doc model, like they didn't claim to recreate it. They just did it with a cheerleading team and it was awesome. So did you see Jerry? So you saw the video of Jerry on the red carpet, right? At the Oscars. Well, that gets into something else too. I would like to say, so I have early on, after I got diagnosed, Brad came over to my house and Brad and my wife and I were up talking. And this was around the time that Game of Thrones was ending. And uh, my wife basically said to Brad, I don't really watch Game of Thrones like you. I don't get into all the conspiracy theories or like breakdown podcasts or anything like that. I just watch the show. And so ever since then, and my wife seems to get more joy out of content than people who then feel the need to pick through it 800 times. So since that conversation, that's how I've been watching everything. Like I don't watch any of the ancillary stuff around it. So no, I did not watch him on Ellen. I have not watched the 15 minute interview where they talk about a possible season two or anything. I just watched the show and that's all I've watched. Yeah. I mean, it was really well done. I haven't finished it yet. Actually. Uh, I watched, oh. I watched like, what are you up to? I think like what, how many are there? Six, eight, six. I think six. I'm on like four. Look, the Jerry spoilers of uh, the red carpet right, kind of right. spoiled some of it, but I kind of figured whatever, it, it doesn't really matter what happens. I'm just more interested in seeing the characters reactions. I would say mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you this though. I didn't know you're going to bring this up, but I, I want to ask you as a, a producer of content like this, uh, for those who don't know, Gareth, seven time Emmy winner, you've worked on, uh, Emmy winning documentary features before things like that. I've also, I've also done a lot of work with the Patriots cheerleaders. Yeah. And, oh yeah. That's uh, right. You know, so I, I know that world at least from the NFL side. So let me just ask you this. what do you think about the way they depicted the violence? Like the, like the, physical the sorry, violence, the violent, like, the violent falls, the, oh, no, like, the violent nature of the sport. I think you put it well. I think that it was, um, I think it's terrifying and I think it actually had a greater impact seeing it in a sport like cheerleading than something like football where you're used to seeing it. You know what I mean? Like anybody can go into football, and you know, you're going to see big hits and stuff like that. Cheerleading. I wasn't expecting to have like, uh, you know, cumulative rib injuries, but they didn't you know? show. Okay. But I thought they took a restrained approach to some of the falls. Like, they would do wide shots when you're like, I bet they have a closer shot of like, was it Sherb's like smashing her arm? Or I bet mm -hmm. they have like the one fall at the, at the very beginning, which I don't know if they showed later or whatever, and people holding their heads. And it's like, I do feel like they said, these are human beings. Let's not go so far. But they did. I mean, you, you absolutely feel the physical nature of the sport, which I was familiar with anyway, just from some of the work I'd done on sports brands. Um, anyone who's seen what cheerleadings become over the years was not shocked at the intensity of it, but I mm -hmm. thought they, I thought it was treated in a way that could have been far more exploitative, but wasn't. No, I, I agree with you. I thought, and look, I think what the, 
Look, I think what they did, and it shows that they're great filmmakers above all, and that's why this works, but every everything that happened to them that could have become a problem, they turned into a positive. Like at the end, I'll spoil this because it's not a big deal. They talk about this this company that's kind of taken over cheerleading and has the rights to everything, and they wouldn't give them credentials to shoot at the the finals and so they basically loaded everybody up with cameras and said well you shoot it and it gives it such a handheld intimate feel that you're really i think it brings you in more than if they'd been there to just shoot it themselves you know and yeah and and i think that that's a mark of a great filmmaker a great group of filmmakers number one is to make that stuff work for you and i think that that also applies to the violence and falls and injuries like it's obviously a part of the story but i think you can get so much out of out of just the reactions of people rather than showing the fall itself you know what i mean like you hear the fall happen you see somebody watching it gasp you see everybody run to the person who's down on the floor. You see them crying. You know this was serious. You know, like there's nobody who is watching it and thinks this is a small thing. But I think that it just it they succeeded in doing it in a way that didn't that didn't make it exploitative. Um, it reminds me of the film, my favorite movie of two years ago. You were never really here which is in my private mind garden, why Joaquin Phoenix won an Oscar on Sunday night, not the Joker, um, because it was basically the, the I gained weight version of his Joker performance. But long story short, in that film, there's a lot of violence, but they, every time they go to, you go to see the violence close up, it like cuts to a security camera and you see it removed from a high angle on a different camera through a monitor, and you, or you just see somebody like fall through a screen or something like that. Like there are ways to depict this stuff at this point creatively that don't draw unnecessary attention to it. So, uh, no, but cheer was, was great. All right. Here, here's my distraction for this week. I want to talk about an equally serious, provocative and, uh, soon to be award winning, um, you know, uh, uh, a piece of pop culture, which is the Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> reboot Ooh, and or continuation. Go. Okay, this was a yeah. listener request from Truck and Johnny, <laughs> who sent me a text and said, I'm shocked you haven't talked about this. And I'm like, oh, I have thoughts. Let's just save it for the pod. Let's go. Yeah. So I, here's my, okay, the, the, like the Friday the 13th movies, like Hellraiser, like all the 80s franchises, um, and we just saw Chucky get another uh, run at it. I, I'm a firm believer that um, they should make new, uh, a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie. They tried to reboot it in like 2009, and it was just so dour and horrible and whatever. Mm-hmm. And now there's new talks to do it again. So I want to lay out, Gareth, quickly my plan to re, uh, re, uh, re-inject a, a new nightmare, so to speak, into the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, universe, although one that's preferably better than Wes Craven's new nightmare, um, okay. which tried to do this in the 90s. I love it. Number one, I'm going to cast my Freddy Krueger right now. Okay. I'm dropping off the dump truck of money to Bill Hader. Huh. Here's why. Freddy Krueger. Would he say yes to it in a million years? Would he do it? I mean, 
Did I mention the dump truck of money? Okay, good point, good point, good point. Good I point. mean, he he was How in large a, a dump truck are we talking? He was good in point. a Pringles commercial last year. Right. Okay, fair enough. Okay, all right. <laughs> I mean, it's a Super Bowl commercial, but still, I mean, no, but I think... he loves also having his own passion projects and things like that. So you say to him, we'll give you the biggest dump truck we can find, and then you can fund all these movies you want to do. Well, so, here's the deal. Dude, I get it. I bring, I'm going star over premise. Hater, mm-hmm. you've shown your creative chops with Barry. Assemble yep. your team. We're going to hand you the IP the way that Saw handed it to Chris Rock and the way that or Halloween handed it Halloween. to David Gordon Green yep. And, and, yep. and them. And we're going to say, come back and reinvent the character. But we want it to be a mixture of horrifying and funny, which I think mm-hmm. he can do in a way that stays true to the original Freddy Krueger. I mean, when they gave it to Jackie Earl Haley, is I think the actor, right? He yep. was just so in the grimy like just seriousness of it all uh that it didn't it just doesn't work it doesn't feel like it feels right. like the fucking babadook i don't know I, I mean i i don't need freddie being like i mean we definitely reached a point where he was just like hey bitch like right, like every right. other line i don't need that right. either but there's a there's an in between version that from like the first 3 movies that i think you can harness got it two no remakes original story i do not want like the first movie shot for shot redone the way they did in 09. I don't want uh, a dream warriors. Uh, we're going to go remake the penitentiary one. I just give me a new premise for Freddie. It's fine. And I don't care if it syncs up with what happened before. Okay. Three, instead of getting like CW Archie TV series actors, I want all the kids to be weird kids. I'm dropping off my second dump truck of money to Billie Eilish to to star Ooh, in this. And, wow. And to assemble a, an incredible cast of like online weirdos that she loves and be like, I want to tell this story through the lens of just people that are just quirky and weird and cool and kind of cast offs and not worry about getting these generic hunks that no one's going to remember in 10 years anyway. I think that is, so I've been talking to somebody about this with like um, child actors and child acting in general. And he was, he made a good point recently about so many of these kids get based, get cast based on their look at a certain point in their life. And that's why when they try to become actors as adults, they can't do it because you're like, yeah, you're not actually a good actor like the part you they needed when you were eight um and now you have enough money to indulge trying to act or you have a big enough name that you can get you know auditions and casting calls for the rest of your life so i love your idea about just steering away from that entirely and just like find interesting weirdos and go from there and then here's my final one you ready hit me it's got to be set in the 80s like and okay, to, well, don't we have enough period pieces between it, between Stranger Things? That's the one part that I feel like I might push back. Uh, I don't know, man. It's it's like it's like what We Hate Movies says about this, which is like put an egg timer on these fuckers. You get to ninety one, and it's like, what are you doing? Why is Freddy Krueger? It's like seeing Max Hedrum in something. To me, right, part okay. of the charm is. Um, 
these were sort of products of a bygone era. So just have more fun with that. And I, I look at something like American Horror Story, which had a slasher sort of send up in this past season that went back to the 70s, 80s. And I'm like, yeah, that's the right place to put a slasher movie. Like that's the that's the template we all saw. And when you put it in the modern context, it can be easier to sort of compartmentalize uh, or it's it, it's a little easier to look at the the elements of it and go, this doesn't fit. And so I just want to take that off the table. Uh, I, I, okay. And that's interesting too, because like uh, my wife and I the other night watched the most recent Godzilla movie, which was unbelievably bad, just a really <laughs> terrible movie. And, and she was saying like, how did this happen? I was like, well, it, it's interesting because I was like, it's just at the end of the day, it's a big monster movie, but then it tries to shoehorn in. And this is just one of the many problems but it shoehorns in all these contemporary problems uh, as to why the monsters are there. And it has to do with global warming and things like that. And so it's trying to retcon Godzilla, which was a byproduct of the nuclear war uh, in world war two and things like that to being this other metaphor. And it doesn't work for a variety of reasons. So as much as I would say, we might have enough 80s stuff already um, you do make a good point about the fact that some of these these genres are best made and or set in a particular time. So I will listen to that. All right, now, now, this is studio executive. You ready for my you ready for my ti- my title? Go for it. Freddie never sleeps. Yeah, that's a great title. And it's not Nightmare on Elm Street. It's not going to be the third time we, a movie's been called Nightmare on Elm Street. It's just going to be called Freddie Never Sleeps. And then this franchise should be Freddy, 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 Freddy something. Blank. It's yeah. Freddy. Every yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That is that's great. I will like. I love those movies. Even the later ones. I did a ranking. I think last year where I I ranked the nightmares and people were like, I can't believe you have four. The the Dream Master is so high. And I'm like, you're gonna have to take this combo to the bar. I got a lot of thoughts. That movie is pretty great. Um, but I you know it's a hard one to get right, and I think instead of like reinventing these old IP it look at I don't know man Marvel's not reinventing fucking Spider-Man they're leaning into the things people liked about the original so like let's just lean in and like figure this out anyway all right let's end with some shout outs I'm gonna shout out uh Emma Bachelary from Sports Illustrated to go read her really enjoyed our interview Gareth do you want to shout out anybody in in your life yeah, Dr. James Harding and the crew at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Let's do this. <laughs> let's do so. it. Let's do it indeed. And again, I, you know, it's great to have you back on. We'll try and do this, uh, you know, more frequently here and there as I get more shows up. But uh, always good to talk to you and give you a little bit of a distraction. And you know, we love you, and you know, we're 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 with you every step of the way. Thank you so much. And look, this was a lot of fun. This definitely just changed the course of my day. And uh, let's do more of it. So. All right, we 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 shall, my friend. Okay, <laughs> great, awesome.